Hey, good morning. How y'all doing? Ready and anxious for school to start, some of you? Like everybody that's going to school just shook their heads no, and then every parent in the room went yes. So uh, we're excited for it. Um, hey, so here, here's the thing. Like if you were to um, like ask me, like, am I like a social person? I would say like, well, yeah, like in, in a lot of instances I am. Um, but if you were to, to really dig into that and say, like, would you rather spend all of your time around people um, or all of your time alone? Like, I think I would have the tendency to say, like, actually, at the end of the day, I find, like, what's more refreshing to me is to be alone. Like, that's why I go seek some isolation, like on bike rides and all that, right? Um, and so usually social interactions are things that kind of, while I enjoy them, they, like, they kind of drain me, right? So I need to go out, and that alone time is usually spent recharging and refreshing. But there's a huge difference um, between kind of putting that time out there and, and regulating that time and having some discipline for, my, for myself in that time and what it does for me, um, and actually then experiencing like isolation and aloneness. Like those are, those are two very different things. So um, the first time I really experienced this was about 1995. I was invited to come along as a volunteer leader on a high school trip down to Mexico. And um, one of the things that I know now after having led decades of those trips is there's a huge difference between being a volunteer leader on that trip and, and leading that trip. And so there's always, a, it's also like leading something is, a, is it sometimes a bit of an isolating experience, right? So I was freed up on this trip as like a new Christian and then like, you know, 23, 24-year-old guy to, to really kind of dig into like the relationships with the students and the fellow staff members. And so it was like all people all week long, right? And it was 11 days, I think, total, maybe 12, about 100 people that went on this trip. And it, it was like, all, like you just every meal you eat together, you're not, you know, you just, every time you're going to sleep, there's a bunk filled of snoring kids and adults and everything. And you, sir, you get to work together. So there's like this great experience that came from it. And I, like, I really thrived in that. God, I think God really cemented um, certain aspects of my call to ministry on that. Pretty sure Sheena was on that trip um, also. And so we got back from that experience, and I remember standing in the parking lot and kind of was probably one of the last people there just saying goodbye to the kids and everybody else. And then I was living in Corvallis at the time in an apartment with a, with a roommate. I remember like driving home and walking in, and my roommate was gone because it was around spring break time, so they weren't back yet. And from, you know, I don't know, probably got home about 9 and I, I just remember sitting there under like really the, the crushing weight of having been around people inescapably for, you know, the better part of 12 days and then coming back to this experience of just nobody's here and finding myself feeling like a little bit crushed under the weight of what it meant to be alone. Now, that wasn't permanent. I'm sure the next day I woke up and hung out with people, but I remember just feeling like I don't like this sense of what it means to be alone, right? And then um, certainly like started to, to kind of think like, what is this thing that I just experienced, right? And so I think in a year, um, now over a year that has been so isolating and, and so many people have experienced nothing but that isolation um, and that aloneness, I think it's it's, it's fitting for us to wrap our minds around what that means and our experiences with that. 
Because here's what we're going to discover today in this passage that we're looking at. All the things that, that Jesse walked us through last week are, are so true. Like Jesus is our true and, and better king. And there's those moments where you see those disciples like clutching onto that and, and really wanting to be with their king and, and with Jesus. We discover that he's a king who's going to suffer in agony for his people. And, and, and the sheer horror of what he's about to face in today's passage and as we move ahead next week, what we discover is Jesus will walk all of that alone. It is going to be an isolating experience for him. An infinitely more isolating experience than those moments that maybe our memories can recall when we've experienced that. Like, there's some similarities, but Jesus is going to experience it on, on every level. He's going to walk through all of this alone. And what we'll discover today is he, he has to experience all of this alone. So let's do this real quick to kind of catch up. We're going to look at this section of scripture that we actually closed off last week with. And it's verses 22 through 25 of chapter 14. And let's just read it real quick together again so we can, like Matt didn't read this part, but I want to, I want to bring this in because it becomes kind of the anchor that um, everything before happened is connected to this little chunk. And then everything that's about to happen is, we'll see today, is so connected to these few short verses here. And so it's this scene where Jesus is gathered together with his friends and his disciples. And it says, as they were eating, he took bread. After blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood the co of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So let me pray one more time. We're going to ask God for his help here for all of us today that his gospel would come to light in our hearts, and then we're going to jump into this. Father, we thank you. Uh, once again, we are wholly dependent upon your presence here, and we don't invite you into this moment. Um, we, we understand that as we worship you in truth and spirit, we're coming alive to the fact that you're always present with us, that you're always involved with your people, and, and maybe today as we worship you, today we would come to even a deeper understanding of what it means that you have not left us alone, and your presence is always with your people. And so we, we worship you today. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So this scene that just unfolded, this moment for Jesus, here's what's happening. He's instituting what we most commonly call the Lord's Supper. Now, it's something that every single Sunday um, we recognize and believe that that's something that, that we should receive and that we should um, with celebration, um, enjoy those moments where we get to go to the table. This is the moment where all of that started, right? And it, it paints this picture in that moment, that scene that I just read of Jesus and his suffering and his atoning and, and, and what we'll come to realize very like bloody sacrifice on the cross. But it also draws us into those final fleeting moments of Jesus and his disciples in the garden before his death. And so this casts a long shadow over everything that's coming in Jesus's life. Um, but there's also this like dark and ominous cloud that, that hangs over this evening that Jesus is about to face. One of his closest friends and followers 
will do what is seemingly unthinkable. He'll betray Jesus. He'll betray the rest of his disciples. He'll betray himself and what's true about him. And because of this betrayal, Jesus will suffer unthinkable pain and agony at the hands of his enemies. He will be abandoned by every single one of his friends in his greatest hour of need. He's going to be sold out and deserted. He will drink from the cup of his father's wrath. King Jesus will suffer at every level. And I'm telling you, like that's all that we have ahead of us over the next few weeks. We'll see Jesus experiencing in the garden personal, mental, physical, and, and really most importantly, like spiritual suffering. But while we struggle with all of this, right? Like, like I would think on some level, like we're all crazy if we don't step back and kind of go like, how could God do all of this? Like, how could he send his son, right? And, and so where we don't see all of this, Jesus does. Jesus sees all of it. He sees the Father's hand in all of this. He submits to and trusts the Father through all of it. And furthermore, he sees that the Father's will is actually the way through his suffering. So today's passage reveals that Jesus, all creation's good and righteous king, will suffer. And he will, and he must endure it alone. So we're going to look at kind of three dimensions of what and how this experience was so isolating for him. There's three dimensions of this. So we're going to kick it off. The first is kind of this big chunk of scripture, 26 through 31. And we're going to discover this, that the king would be abandoned and left alone, left alone by all of his closest friends and followers. And so it begins with this verse 26. It says, and they had sung a hymn. Now, what was most commonly traditional, this is probably referring to these songs of Hallel, which that Hebrew word just simply means praise. So these songs of praise, they're prayers of thanksgiving. They're found most commonly, probably what's being referred to are these psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 are these songs of praise or Hallel. And they would be most commonly recited or sang at like most major holidays. So Passover, Hanukkah. Um, and so that's probably most commonly what that's referring to is as they're leaving this meal, which would be most customary to them would be to sing and recite some of these songs of praise. And then it, they, they go out, right? So they're, they're in this room and then they go out from there to the, to the Mount of Olives. So once again, they return to this scene. Now we just looked at that a couple weeks ago. There was a place where that particular piece of geography became important because it's where Jesus like kind of stood up and he starts dropping all these crazy verses about the end of the world as we know it, right? Um, and he warns his disciples, like here's this impending reality that's coming, right? And he wants them to, to stay awake. So we got to lock that away, that sermon from a couple weeks ago where Jesus says, hey, listen, the most important thing that you can pay attention to in this eschatological future that's coming is that you should be awake, right? And so he returns to that scene where he encouraged his disciples, despite the chaos that's happening in the world, stay tuned in to me and stay awake. <clears throat> and that freaks the disciples out a little bit, right? Um, and so they have that etched into their memory, that scene that we, we were just out here and Jesus was saying some pretty crazy things. But then look at what he says to them here. 
And Jesus said to them, you will fall away, right? And so as Jesus predicts that all of the disciples will be scattered to the winds in all of these upcoming events, he uses this, this, this verb, scandalizo, right? And, and he's used that before, and the place that he's used it in Mark is all the way back in chapter 4. And if you know that story, if you can recall that, that's where Jesus walks through this parable that he tells his disciples, this story that comes along, this deeper teaching. And he tells a story of these soils. And he talks about this one particular like content of the soil that's filled with a bunch of rocks, and it responds positively to like nurturing seed and plant, and there's some initial growth here, but in the end it has no depth. And he uses that same word, right? That, that essentially the seed planted in that rocky soil that has no depth and no substance to it, it will scandalizo, it will fall away. Like when persecution comes, Jesus says that they are scandalized just like that soil and they will fall away. So it's hard to imagine that when Jesus was saying that in that moment back in chapter 4, that he wasn't thinking about this moment that we're looking at in chapter 14, because he knew the reality that his disciples would fall away. They're like the rocky soil. Now, that's not new info, info for them. Jesus had already told them as much just a few verses back, right? Mark paints this intimate scene, Jesus and his disciples, and they're gathered around this table, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're laughing, and they're, they're so close and so intimate to each other that they're reclining into one another. They're, they're physically like propping each other up, and he, and he calls it out. He says, one of you that is sharing in this very intimate scene in this moment will betray me. But, but now to hear that every single one of them, and you can picture that scene at the table where Jesus is like one of you, and he even calls it out, right? Like whoever is dipping their bread in this cup with me right now, and we know who that is, but you got to picture this moment where Jesus says one of you will, and instantly they all thought it's not me. There's no way it's me. There's no way, right? And, and then he says like the reality is you will all struggle with this. You will all fall away. You will all betray me. And then he goes on, and he quotes this old like prediction, this old prophetic word from Zechariah. And he says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This reference from Zechariah, it's such a cool and unique passage here. It's a predictive passage about what God will do when he sends his good shepherd and what the sheep will do and how they'll respond and how they'll be tested in a lot of ways. And it's filled with all these illusions that we can now see taking place here. Like, so in quoting this prophecy from Zechariah, he's revealing that God the Father has had this on his mind the entire time. God the Father will strike the good shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Everything that has happened, we need to see Jesus is affirming is in the loving and sovereign hands of the Father. There's also these like crazy parallels in this passage in Zechariah and Mark's depiction of like the Last Supper. There's a covenant in Zechariah, sealed in blood. Zechariah talks about the, the coming of the kingdom of God. He talks about this shepherd, the good shepherd being struck. There's even a reference to the, to the Mount of Olives in that. And so there, it's clear that, that what Zechariah was saying so many years ago is, is now in some ways what is happening in this, this scene. 
So, so then Mark points then us to, and he portrays Jesus and his last night on earth, right? As the time when this eschatological testing is spoken of by Zechariah. God's shepherd will be struck, his sheep will scatter, they'll be tested even to the breaking point. And, and this is all of God's making. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death is both an action of obedience to the Father's will and it's ordained and sanctioned by the Father. So the disciples, what we see, will scatter. They will flee. They will run. But there's also this like, great hope embedded in all of this because Jesus follows up with this great promise to his disciples. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So here's what we need to understand. He's saying, hey, listen, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go away, but I will be raised up. So there's this predictive moment of his triumph and resurrection. And then he says, I'm going to regather all of you. I'm going to regather all of you and take you to the place where really I, I first called so many of you, which is Galilee. And it's here where Jesus will return and the disciples will return and he will reclaim them. And he's going to now recommission them for the work of taking the gospel to the entire world. So it's this beautiful moment of hope and promise to his disciples. We begin to see the first fruits of Jesus saying, like, I'm forming this ecclesia, this, this church, this, this gathering of my people here, and it's going to start as I raise and, and regather and recollect you. Like, yes, he's going to die, and he's going to die alone on a cross, but he'll be raised up, and he's coming back for them, and he has a purpose and a plan for them. That's amazing, right? And then there's Peter. And it's like there's always Peter in these stories, right? So Peter hears this prediction of their defection and their betrayal. And then he basically throws all of his friends under the bus, right? Let's look at this real quick. Peter said to them, even if they fall away. Like, so he's looking around and he's thinking like, even if all of my friends are unloyal to you, I will not, right? And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But then he makes this other like emphatic declaration. He says, if I must die, I will not deny you. I will die with you, right? And so much so that all the other disciples are like, yeah, me too, right? Now, listen, that's a bold assertion, right? It's an amazing pledge of loyalty. Like, I don't know about you, but like loyalty is a, fires for me heavily. It's a, it's a high value. Like, I will give you my loyalty. I will be a loyal person. And so this is like, this starts to spark up a lot in me. It's, it starts to spark up this like romantic and like kind of poignant and powerful like thing in me that goes like, yes, like that's amazing. Like loyalty is, is such a powerful thing that you can give to somebody. But the problem with Peter's declaration of loyalty here is it's a complete lie, right? He's effectively calling Jesus a liar, Jesus is like, you're all going to fall away, especially you, Peter. Like, you won't stick with me. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. I got this, Jesus. And Peter's simply wrong, right? Jesus rebukes Peter next. He, he, he tells him, like, no, like, you will deny me before this rooster can crow and signal that this very night is upon us. Peter's going to tragically deny that he even knew Jesus. But, but Peter doesn't buy it. He simply can't imagine what threat, what level of danger, what intense horror he could face that would ever cause him to walk away 
from this relationship, right? This friendship that had been forged through adversity, this like shared history that they now have and formed over the past three years. Peter's like, no way. There's nothing that could come between me and you. He's pledging his love, his affection, his loyalty to King Jesus. And he's saying, never, right? So Peter tells Jesus, even if it means giving my very life alongside of you, I will die with you. I will remain loyal. And what do we know to be true about Peter? Of course he doesn't, right? He does exactly what Jesus predicts, and not once and not twice, but three times he denies ever having known his friend. Apparently, Peter's like emphatic declaration is enough to inspire like the rest of the disciples because they're all like, yeah, like we, we, we want to be what Peter's being. Like we, we, we agree with that, right? Because they all, and, and I believe that included even Judas, they all declare like their unflinching loyalty to Jesus. Judas already had it in his heart that he was going to betray. Like, you die, we all die, Jesus. And listen, like if you're anything like me, like I kind of look at this story and I go like, those, those fools, right? Like, like I'd be so different than them. Like, because when I say it, I mean it, right? If I declared that, it's going to happen. Like I'd follow through no matter what. But here's the problem with that, right? And I think, like, listen, if you're like me, like, you've thought about, like, what would I do in this moment, right? And as some of us wrap our minds around, like, all of the confusing things that we believe about eschatology and how this is all going to come down, we're like, no, never, I would never do this. But here's the problem. All of that declaration of loyalty, all of that, like, I will stick with Jesus, that, that's all rooted in, in, in you, right? That's all rooted in you. And so here's the deal. No matter what declaration of loyalty that you declare, if it's rooted in like your efforts, like I will be strong enough. I will be smart enough, right? I, I will just be, have enough fortitude to never deny any of this. Well, here's the problem with that. Is your work and your effort what brought you to Christ in the first place? Not at all. So, so who are we to think that our pledges of loyalty and fealty to Christ is what's going to keep us. It's not. What keeps us is Christ's loyalty to us. And so we don't keep ourselves in Christ. He keeps us in him because it's his work that brought us to him in the first place. So that's Peter. That's the disciples. There's this big predictive moment where they're going to walk away and they all say no way. The next thing we see is this in this next chunk, 32 through 42, that the king would agonize over his passion in the garden alone. So let me just read this back to you here, and we're not going to go as like verse by verse, but I want you to see this scene again and like feel this scene and understand that like everything that Jesus is expressing and feeling in this moment, he felt on every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He's walking through this, and he's walking through this alone. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly be distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Remain here and do what? Stay awake. Stay here and stay awake awake while, while I go over here. And he goes on, and, he, and going a little further away, so he's now alone. He fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? That doesn't give good boating for like what happened back on the Mount of Olives back in chapter 13, where he said to his disciples, stay awake. Like they couldn't even stay awake for one hour in this moment. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Like three times, Jesus confronts him. Three times, Jesus prays. And what will Peter do three times? deny Jesus. So these verses like touch down on like sacred and holy grounds. Like we will never fully understand or feel the depth of agony and isolation that Jesus experiences in this moment. We'll never fully realize the emotional, spiritual turmoil and agony that he's walking through and suffering. Jesus experiences this all alone in this garden And he experiences it all because of his great love for sinners and rebels like you and I. So Jesus takes his disciples to this place, this garden, right? It's a familiar place to them. More than likely, it's a place that they've been on several occasions. He would take them there to retreat and refresh themselves. It's outside of the bustle of the city and the busyness there. And and probably he would go there with his disciples to, to pray and to find solitude. And so he instructs his disciples to stay behind and to stay awake, right? Especially like these guys, Peter, James, and John. Like these are his three, like these are his dudes, right? These are my people. I can trust them. So, so stay awake, stay here, and, and, and while I go and be alone and pray. And he feels all this. Like it's real emotions, it's real tears, it's real trepidation over the physical pain that he will experience. He knows what's before him, but verse 33 says that he was greatly troubled and distressed. That's, that's this moment where we get this beautiful glimpse into this dual nature of Jesus. We see him as God in this moment as he aligns his heart with the will of the Father, but we also see him experiencing all of this like a human would experience this because he was fully human. So we see the intimacy that he experiences with the Father, the sameness that he experiences with the Spirit. And then it also draws us in as humans. And listen, the, the, the idea here is that it's not, like Jesus doesn't walk through all of this so that we can relate to him and his suffering because we'll never truly understand. We'll never feel the degree to which he feels the separation and the agony. But he experiences all of it so that he could relate to us in our suffering. We have a king We have a priest, we have a better temple that can relate to us. So he walks through all of this. And then his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, right? He says, stay awake, like stay behind, but stay awake. Keep your eyes open and be prepared. So there's that parallel back to 13. And of course, they completely get it. Jesus says, stay here and stay awake. But instead they stay and they fall asleep. And then we get this glimpse into the agony of Jesus, that what he's feeling, his emotional state, how he's processing this impending reality that's just right around the corner for him. He finds this solitary place in the garden away from his disciples, away from his enemies. 
And he falls to the ground under the weight and the strain of his passion, the burden that he's carrying. He pleads like with the Father in these final moments, like if it's possible, would this hour pass by me? The intensity and the intimacy of this request is staggering. Do you see how like this piece of scripture is like this sacred, holy piece for us? We get to walk through like Jesus here in these moments. He's kind of saying the quiet parts aloud. And we get to hear it. We get to hear as he wrestles through this. You can almost feel how much it's weighing on him with this next request. He says, Abba, Father, like, I get it. You can do anything, but if you would remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's saying, like, I know that you can remove it, but I know that you can't. And in spite of this exceptional trauma of this moment and really the certain future that laid ahead for Jesus. He trusts God. He trusts his loving father and his will. The cup that he prayed to be removed, it wasn't so much that it was the physical pain that he would endure on the cross. He needed to feel every ounce of it. Jesus will stand in that place and say, I will feel every ounce of this pain just like you would if I were not standing in your place. So it's not so much that the cup that so distressed and troubled him was this spiritual suffering and isolation that he would endure and he would bear the sins of the world and he would drink to the last drop the fierce wrath of God that we deserved as a substitute in our place. And so this moment where Jesus is saying, I know you can, would you, but I know that you can't, is him saying, like, I will willingly walk through the full weight. Like in this moment today, as you sit here, and if you could have all of it run back in your mind, like every time that you said no to God and said yes to something else, and how that hurts his heart, like this is the moment where Jesus is wrestling through the agony of all of that on your behalf for us. And so there's this beautiful, intimate scene where we see Christ and what he has before him. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, King's Cross. He says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience a spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. And who wouldn't under the weight of it? The anguish and pain of the cross was not what concerned Jesus' soul. It was knowing that he would be abandoned and separated from his Father while he answered for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and injustice and cowardice and evil in the world that, that we have projected out into the world, right? That, that is what brought him to his knees and moved him to make this poignant plea. As Jesus struggles and wrestles with all of this, his closest friends are not paying attention. They're not awake. They're soundly sleeping. Jesus knew they wanted to be strong for him. They earnestly meant their pledges of loyalty, but he also knew that they would fail. And he has to fa face both his and theirs and our darkest moments alone. 
So he goes back to his disciples and he, and he finally wakes them up and he says, this is it. The time is here and he settles the issue. Jesus's will and his father's will are united. They are the same. There's not any ounce of difference in what the father had planned and what Jesus will do. The author of Hebrews says it like this. He says, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So listen, like we need to see this. This garden was hell for Jesus. This moment where Jesus knew everything that he was going to face was hell for him. But we should be grateful and thankful that he walks through this and he walks through it alone because if there's no garden, if there's no Gethsemane, there's no Calvary. And if there's no Calvary, there could be no empty tomb. And if there's no empty tomb, there's only anguish, despair, isolation, separation of hell for us. So the last thing we see is just simply this in verses 43 through 52. The king would be arrested and forsaken alone. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will ask, or the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So here's the deal. Why Jesus... He's talking with his disciples. He's waking them back up. Judas, again, his friend, comes now, and his plot is finally unfolding. It's the moment that Judas had been waiting for. It's the moment that the minute he betrayed Jesus was demanded of him. So he comes with an armed crowd from the Sanhedrin, basically like the temple police. We learn from John's account, Mark doesn't give us this detail, but it's important and it's significant for everything that's about to unfold. He's also accompanied by like a Roman garrison, right? And so this is a premeditated plan. Judas gives Jesus this like very customary greeting, right? But turns it into a kiss of betrayal and death. And this was all done so that they could identify Jesus and arrest him. So like they spring into action. Mark writes that they took hold of Jesus and they began to arrest him, right? No charges were made following legal protocol. It's not what is on their agenda this night. This isn't justice for the mob. It's vengeance. The disciples may have been taken by surprise, right? He says one of them, he draws his sword, right? I'm sure he had it like duct taped to the back of his t-shirt, right? So they couldn't see it. Draws his sword, he strikes one of the servants of the high priest, he cuts off his ear. Notice that Mark doesn't say names. He doesn't call anybody in this a disciple because I think what Mark is saying, what Jesus is saying is like, this is all, this is all behavior 
like not fitting of a disciple. So he doesn't call them disciples here. He's like, I didn't ask you to do this, right? Um, he doesn't even name Peter in this, right? And so this servant was probably like a servant of the high priest of Caiaphas. And of course, it's Peter, we learn from other gospel accounts, that, that is the guy that went wild on this guy's ear, right? Jesus heals then the man by restoring his ear, and then he calls out to this angry mob, right? He kind of confronts them in their extreme and excessive measures. Like, do you bring more than 600 armed men to arrest one peace-loving rabbi? It doesn't make sense, right? So, and then he confronts them. He's like, this is how you would treat a robber. This is how you would treat a revolutionary. This is how you would treat a threat. But I'm none of those things. I'm not a robber. I'm not a political revolutionary. I'm not an insurrectionist. He's like, you know me. You've seen me. You've had opportunities to do this, right? But they come under the, the darkness and safety of night because they knew what they were doing was illegal. They knew what they were doing was wrong. He said, you could have arrested me any time in broad daylight, but you knew that you had no legal grounds to. But arresting him late at night in this quiet, secluded location, it reveals their cowardice. It reveals that they really have no charges to bring against him. It's also fulfillment of scripture. Like when you look to Isaiah's beautiful prophecy in chapter 53 of the suffering servant, we see that this servant would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be taken away because of oppression and judgment, that he would be counted among the rebels and the robbers, right? And then verses 50 through 52, Jesus like records this like defection of the disciples, right? And, and, and yep, it goes just like Jesus said. They all flee. They all left in this moment. Like, their pledges of loyalty meant nothing. They're thinking about their own safety, their own lives, their own protection in that moment, right? Every last one of them. So remember just a short time before this, they're boasting, like, I'll die alongside you, Jesus, if I have to. I'll get arrested with you. And then they just take off, right? Nowhere to be found. And then I love this last little piece that Mark gives us here, right? This anonymous young man who for some reason was wearing nothing but his like linen me undies, right? Like, I don't know what's going on, why he's just in his skivvies, but he's like nearly captured, right? But then he's able to escape. He's able to escape because, I mean, he ditches his skivvies, right? And so he ran away naked. Most scholars speculate that this young man was none other than Mark himself, right? And having like a young man in my house, this is a scene that unfolds like really regularly for us too, right? So I get it, right? So it's a little weird thing where Mark's like probably more than likely going like, I was this guy, right? And I was so desperate to, to get away from this impending reality that I bolted. I'd rather face the sheer embarrassment of running away naked, which is always awkward, right? Not the good type of naked, than go to my death, right? So I, I think Mark here is, he gives us this little detail also because it takes us back to this scene in another garden, a garden where we were only to be exposed to God's goodness, to God's presence, to God's love, to his mercy, to his grace, to his justice. Instead, in that other garden, we deserted the God who created us and loves us. And we're exposed in our nakedness and we feel guilt and shame and embarrassment because we betrayed and we ran from the God who created us and loved us in that garden. So Jesus' arrest 
He's arrested, he's, he's forsaken, he's, he's all alone to face the wrath of men and the wrath of God. He will receive everything that we were meant to so that we might receive all that he deserves. So the garden is this prelude to Calvary. Before he could surrender his body to be beaten, to be crucified on the cross, Jesus had to first surrender his will to his heavenly father in the garden. In that first garden, Adam said to the father, not your will, but mine be done. And all of creation was plunged into tragedy and sin. In this second garden, Jesus, the second Adam, says, not my will, but yours be done. And the redemption and salvation of all creation begins. New life in this garden. Eden brought death. Gethsemane begins new life. And Jesus accepted that he would be abandoned and left alone so that you and I would never be abandoned or left alone. Now this brings us back to the table, this intimate scene of 13 friends gathered around a meal. And it's no mistake that Mark places the account of Jesus sharing his body and his blood with his disciples, this new covenant of grace between the predictions of his disciples' betrayal and all of his disciples deserting him. Because at the table, Jesus is giving himself to his disciples, right? Remember, he faces it all alone so that we don't have to and we don't. At the table, Jesus extends this deep invitation to join him and the Father and the Spirit in this holy common unity, this communion. He invites us and affords us and purchases us a place at the table, a table and a place that we don't deserve to be at because of sin, but we get to dine and feast with God because of his grace. So we don't have to face this alone. Like the good news of all of this story is Jesus walked through it all alone so we don't have to, so that you would never be alone again. And he gives us himself. But he's also given us, well, us. He's given us this covenant family. That's what he's doing at the table with his disciples. At the table, he tells his disciples that the bread is my body, meaning himself, his person, his identity. The cup is me, and you'll drink of it, and you'll eat of it, and you'll be given me. And, and when they're eating this meal with Jesus, they're participating in Jesus himself, identifying themselves with him and especially with his death. But he's also given us each other in that moment. Mark writes that he gave it to his disciples, which is so significant when you go back to that scene, because who's at that table? Who is Jesus giving himself to? He's giving himself to a liar. He's giving himself to a traitor. He's giving himself to a denier, a doubter, a sinner, and a rebel. And at that table, he's also saying, I'm giving you, my disciples, to each other to be a part of this covenant family. So the disciples are utterly unworthy to be eating with Jesus. They are acting and behaving, right, 
like these perfect examples of non-disciples through all of this. Rather than being with him, they're going to abandon him. Rather than being faithful to him and listening to him, one of them is plotting to destroy and betray him. Others will deny that they even know him. That's who's at the table. That's who's at this table this morning, right? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite Matt and his team, and they're going to start passing around the elements. And we don't often do this here at Hub City. In fact, I don't know that we've ever done this. But today we're going to pass these elements around, and you're going to wait um, because we're going to receive communion um, as a family together. And we're going to acknowledge when we do this that what Jesus has given us, first and foremost, in this act, at that moment, at that table, is he's given us himself fully and freely so that when it comes down to it, when it comes down to you staying in Christ, it's not dependent upon your commitment of loyalty. It's only dependent upon his finished work. He's what purchased you. He's what brings you to the table. He's what keeps you at the table. And then there's us. And, and just do this for a moment. I want you to actually look around this room, like physically look around this room and look at the people that you're about to do this with. And, and I get it. Like some of us might look around the room and go, oh, there's some people in here that I don't know about. There's some people in here that I don't even know, but then there's some that maybe I don't like. Some of you might be looking right now at the person that you don't like. And that's just okay. But listen, if any of us are willing to stand up and say, I'm not a liar, I'm not a betrayer, I'm not a denier, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a rebel, I don't know that this is the place for you. But we need to acknowledge and know that this is who Jesus has given us. He's given us each other. And so there's this beautiful moment. Like, we just can't, unfortunately, escape that moment and the reality of this, right? And listen, I get it. Like, it's, when, you, when, you, when you're hit in those moments of like, I'd rather not be doing that and this with this person, right? And so it's so tempting to go like, I'd rather not be in community with this person. I'd rather not be on mission with this person. I'd rather not just sit in a church service with this person. Like, think about this moment, right? Think about this moment that God gave us himself and he gives us, right? Like, like I feel like, yeah, like in a lot of ways, I get it. I'm up here. I'm the guy. I get paid to do this, whatever we could think about. But in so many ways, like I don't think about that reality for myself at all. I just look at you guys and I go like, this is who God's given me. This is my family, right? And, and you might move on. You might find another place to fellowship and that's all great. But that doesn't change the fact that we have been given to each other to do this together. And like, I love it. I'm in it. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult and challenging. But here's what I know. When we get to stick in it with each other, we get the rich blessing of watching each other become. Become something that we weren't before this. Become something that Christ is making us into. And we all get to do it together. And I'd rather not like walk away from this just because it's messy and hard and challenging. I'd rather stick in it and stay with it with you guys 
to see the beautiful process of us all becoming what Jesus is making us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand together, and we're going to walk through receiving this together. And in this moment, I don't want you to be thinking about your pledges of loyalty to Christ or to this. I want you to be thinking about Jesus giving himself to us, and then Jesus giving us to us, and how beautiful that is, that he sustains us through this. So in that moment, as he grabbed a piece of bread around this meal, Jesus declared this. He said, listen, there's so many similarities between what this meal recognizes, right? So they're eating a meal that the people of Israel once a year would come together and eat. And they are looking back to a time where they ate this meal together and it celebrated God's deliverance of them as a people. But as they continued to eat it throughout their history, it became this reality that not only did they look back and remember what God had done for them, but they looked forward to the promise of God sending his Messiah. So now we're in this interesting reality where we look back to all of that and we look back to the cross and we remember and we celebrate what Christ has accomplished for us. But we also are now looking and adventing and looking forward to Christ's beautiful return. So as we celebrate, we celebrate a sacrifice, we look back, but we also look forward. And so we remember Christ, we participate with Christ, we identify with Christ, and we identify with each other, right? We say that Christ will hold us together. So he takes the bread, he says, this is my body, I'm going to break this piece of bread, but what it symbolizes is my body broken for you. He says, eat this, and as you eat this Let's eat together. He says, remember me. And then, as his disciples are like just eating, it's what we're doing, right? He grabs a cup. He says, this cup we're all going to drink of together. Like, I have a cup that I have to drink that none of you can. But this cup we get to share in together. This cup is the sign of this new covenant of grace. It's my blood spilled for you that keeps you, that invites you to the table, that gives you to each other. So drink of this cup and remember me. Let's drink together. Guys, like, I love you guys. My family loves you guys. I feel like it's the first time I've been able to like lead in a place we're like, it's not an isolating experience. Like, I just get to be in it with you guys. Like, I'm a sheep, just like you. I know the staff, they love you guys. Like, we feel like and this is our family. And so we love receiving this together with you guys. We love celebrating Jesus' goodness. We love worshiping our King together.